Our text is Hannah's exuberant prayer from 1 Samuel 2. It's often because of its poetic form called Hannah's Song. It is, in fact, a piece of rich and prophetic teaching which marks her off as a prophetess and a theologian in Israel of the highest order. We'll look at it under the three headings that are there on the back inside page of your bulletin. Hannah exalted, the poor exalted, and the king exalted. So the exaltation of Hannah, this this prayer, this song, is in one sense strange. Strange. I mean, it's the song of a new mother marking the arrival of a baby. I mean, try putting this text on the back of your birth announcement. All right, this is a mom in, yes, a thankful mood, but also in a very edgy, razor-sharp, penetrating, theological mood. And the song, note this, the song is sung after Hannah gives the child up, forsaking her maternal rights, And her instincts. She sings after being severed from her long-awaited child. And so hopefully we have some sense now of of why this is Hannah's postpartum meditation. We touched on this last week. She knows this child is more than a personal family event. She knows this barren woman motif deep in Israel's history. She knows that her barrenness was a picture of Israel's barren state, Israel's spiritual state. She knows that her womb being opened means new life and a reversal of fortunes for the nation. And so here, you'll remember previously, she prayed a prayer of great sadness, weeping, Here she begins by saying, my heart rejoices in the Lord, in the Lord my horn. The horn is an image of personal strength and victory. Think of an animal that gores another animal and then lifts up its horns. My strength, my horn is lifted high and exalted. So for Hannah, the Lord, the Lord God is the object. And he is the source of her delight. The child is not mentioned. There might be one faint allusion to the child in the whole poem. The poem is about God. Hannah is a God magnifier. Right? You, want, you aspire, you should aspire to be one of those people. There are people who shrink God down. They turn him into some sort of moralizer in the sky or something like that, or some other thing. But there's a million ways to shrink him down. He's big for Hannah. You know, as I've looked at these early chapters in 1 Samuel, Hannah emerges really as one of the most extraordinary figures in the Bible, in the history of Israel, male or female. Her piety her valor, her intelligence, her theological acumen is rivaled by very few people, and you will see this before we are finished today. 
So the God who exalts Hannah's horn is the God who lifts her up in triumph. She says, my mouth boasts over my enemies. She's not gloating over Peninnah. It's enemies plural. Her concern is with Israel's enemies. There's no spirit of vindictiveness here in this poem. This is a celebration. It's a delight in the Lord's deliverance. For Hannah, his is the mighty salvation. Ours is the joy. And if you want to know, like, the inner secret, the interior depth that produces this kind of text, right, that forms this kind of woman, this kind of person, you need to look no further than verse 2. The God who the poem is about is, according to Hannah, in, incomparable. And I, you know, the, when I use the word incomparable, it's intentionally chosen. Incomparable does not mean spectacular or really, really great. It means unable to be compared. It means comparisons are unlawful. It means Hannah's God is not a being among beings or a God among gods or the greatest in a class of beings called gods. Christianity is not a religion. It's the end of all religions. And Hannah grasps this. The one she sings about is qualitatively different from all else. He exists in transcendent glory. He dwells in unapproachable light. He's the uncaused cause of all things. He is who he is. There is no one, she says, like this God. There is no one, she goes on to say, who is holy like the Lord. He is other or separate. Not subject to us. Always eluding our grasp is God. Our attempts to capture and to shrink and to contain him to manageable directions. Our attempts to always capture him and make him a party to our own agendas. He's a flame of holy fire and light. And this is a holiness which in its great mystery is full of mercy and goodness because it's a holiness which draws near to Israel and purifies and refines and delivers and exalts her. There is no one holy like the Lord, she says. And then she continues. There is no one besides you. Again, the incomparable uniqueness is what has struck her. Given his infinite fullness, given God's unmeasured perfection, it is not possible for there to be two gods like the God of Israel. That's what this means. There is no one besides you. You are exclusive and singular and unique. You know, for what it's worth, I'm convinced that Aquinas has actually philosophically proved this in the Middle Ages. He has a, a compelling argument that given who Christians say the Christian God is, it is not rationally possible for there to be two of them. There is no one besides you. And she says, there is no other rock like our God. 
There's no one steadfast and immutable and faithful and unchanging refuge like this God. None. No one holy like the Lord. No one besides the Lord. No rock like the Lord. Hannah thinks high theology is highly practical. It is the being of God himself, which is the living, pulsating, driving reality shot through her praying. This remarkable theocentric woman is now a teacher of Israel. Because you'll notice there's a reference to our God at the end of verse 2. That indicates that she knows that she is instructing the covenant community, our God. And that community is addressed. She turns to the community and addresses it forcefully next. Because God is this God, this incomparable one, Hannah says this to us. Do not keep talking so proudly or let your mouth speak such arrogance. Very sharp words. She's making a a profound point. Her point is a sense, a living sense of the incomparable God. Again here, this has to be a living reality. This can't be, I do not mean a box checking approach. Every Christian you talk to, if you, tell, if you say, God is unique, they'll check the box. God is infinite, they'll check the box. But whether or not these things actually impinge upon their living consciousness is another matter altogether. Right? So a living sense of the incomparable God, not a box-checking approach. Yeah, 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 I believe all that stuff about God. Let's get out of the really important stuff, like the culture wars. Yeah, 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 yeah. Got all the God stuff. Hannah does not do that, right? She says if you have this living sense of God's being itself, right, you have a supreme love, a holy curiosity, a wonder about the triune Lord, a sort of vital sensing of the sheer weight of God's glory. God is way too weightless for most Christians. He's just too light. If you have this sense, that's going to create a deep humility. It alters the landscape of your heart and mind. It rearranges your sense of what's important, your sense of order and proportion. And one sign of having glimpsed this glory, Hannah says, is holy Repentant silence. Stop talking. Clasp your hand over your mouth, she says to the nation. Notice the logic. God is incomparable. Be quiet. In the presence of this burning, holy mystery, which levels people, it, like it leveled Isaiah, who knew he was a man of unclean lips, amidst the people of unclean lips. As Solomon says in the book of Ecclesiastes, it cannot be put any simpler than this. God is in heaven, and you are on earth. 
Therefore, that difference alone means let your words be few. So human action and human chatter are now, Hannah says, soberly assessed and put in their place. Humble silence is the posture. It can't be produced by the weightless God, by the thin God, but Hannah's God demands it. Because as we heard in the the New Testament lesson, Right? He's the living and active one who penetrates even to the dividing of soul and spirit, who judges the thoughts and intentions of the heart, from whom nothing in the whole creation is hidden, before whom everything is laid bare, and with whom we all must do. We must give an account. That God, she continues, is a God who knows. Notice what's happening here. Here, omniscience is not a dry doctrine. Here, the fact that God is omniscient shakes people to their bones. She's not checking the box on omniscience. She wants the people of God to be rattled a little bit by the fact that he's omniscient. Singular and unique and effortless in his exhaustive knowledge of all things His opinion alone matters, she says. He is in need neither of us nor of our continual chattering or our pontificating or our need to weigh in on everything. So with him, the weighty God, she says in the text, deeds are weighed. God is weighty and he weighs our deeds. And so... God, she is saying, sifts us in his goodness. He sifts the deepest wellsprings of motive. Therefore, she says, forsake proud talk and do not speak in arrogance. This kind of humility, this kind of silence is directly proportional to one's living apprehension of God himself as God. So the second point is the poor are exalted. Here she prophesies. She speaks as if these things, still future, are already present realities. And she documents in the middle of this text a series of really stunning reversals. First, with respect to warfare or human strength, she says the bows of the warriors are broken, but those who stumbled or the feeble are armed with strength. Then there's a reversal with respect to food. Those who were full hire themselves out for food. But those who were hungry are hungry no more. Then with respect to human fertility. She who was barren has borne seven children. But she has had many pines away. The reversals here are total. They turn the world upside down. Right? This, is, this is not an economic manifesto where a rising tide lifts all boats. It's not that. She does not say, notice she doesn't say this. She doesn't say, those who are hungry will also have food. Because, of course, we want prosperity for all. 
She doesn't say that. She does not say those who are barren will also have children along with those who are already full and fruitful. Nor is she saying that the poor will take from the rich. She's doing something completely different. She's predicting a divine reordering of the way the whole world usually works. By the way, all this from having a baby. It's Christmas. It's the Christmas story. Those of you, I'm sure I've picked this up, but we'll see this more. So this is prophetic history written from below, written from the viewpoint of the losers, from those whose voices are silenced or marginalized, from the point of view of the weak and the poor and the hungry and the barren. And that especially means weak and poor and barren Israel. She will be exalted. And those whose power and wealth and strength are used to oppose God and his poor ones will, as the text goes on to say, not prevail, but be broken in their opposition to God. So with Hannah's God, nothing about your circumstances, right? nothing in the social order, nothing is set in concrete. It's important for us to realize that, I think, Nothing is set in concrete. Augustine has this wonderful piece of wisdom about politics where he says our our civic life has only two kinds of leaders, right? Dead ones and dying ones. Nothing is set in concrete. God can and he will demolish human pride, Hannah says, and human power and even human plenty, which is often, collectively, these things are signs of human hubris, human arrogance. Why is this? Well, for one thing, it's because he's exhaustively sovereign and just. Look at verse 6. The Lord brings death and makes alive. He brings down to the grave and raises up. You know where Hannah learned this? Studying the Torah. She learned it at the feet of Moses, who in Deuteronomy 32 does just what Hannah does here. Moses connects God's incomparable greatness with his sovereignty over life and death. Moses says this, See now that I myself am he. There is no God besides me. Hannah's already echoed that. Then Moses says, I put to death and bring to life. I have wounded and I will heal and no one can deliver out of my hand. And now Hannah echoes that. She's a student of Moses. And she continues and says, the Lord sends poverty and wealth. He humbles, he exalts. All of these things are in the hands of the sovereign God who governs absolutely, who's able to bring about these these reversals of fortune. And Hannah returns to those reversals in verse 8. In verse 8, she says, he raises the poor from the dust, lifts the needy from the ash heap. So the Lord of barrenness and life is the giver of resurrection from the dead. Here, he raises the poor from the dust. The poor and needy sit with princes. These words are echoed later in Psalm 113. Here's an interesting fact about Hannah's contribution to the canon of Scripture. This psalm, is alluded to or cited some 15 times in the Psalter. 
Often people remember those references. They don't know they go back to Hannah. She is shaping the vocabulary and the theology of Israel. This reversal then, from the ash heap to enthronement, is underway as God's people, the poor and the meek, are raised up in Christ, seated in the heavenly places. In Christ, the poor and needy inherit thrones of honor. She adds another another layer to her vision of these reversals. It's in the middle of verse 8. She says, For the foundations of the earth are the Lord's, and on them he has set the world. It's an interesting interjection, is it not, to put this in the middle of this poem? I think she's saying that the, the enduring order, the dependability of the creation itself under the majesty of the Creator is cause for hope for the marginal. Right? God guards and He upholds the physical order and thus He guards and He upholds the moral order. The text says He guards the feet of His servants, but the wicked will be silenced. So we can say this. We can say the moral arc of creation is long, but it does bend toward justice. You know why this is important? It shows you that these reversals are not arbitrary. They're they're not indiscriminate. God's just not randomly deciding stuff. They are rooted in his goodness as creator. Or another way to put what she says here is that the laws of nature and nature's God are in the long term on the side of the poor. You know, it's interesting. This concern for the poor and the the meek is shot through the Torah, shot through the Psalms, shot through the prophets. And that's not even to talk about Jesus or the New Testament. But it's unique to Israel. It, it, It was a new thing in the world. You find very little concern for charity, personal charity for the poor in the ancient Greco Roman world. You can find some, but it's very uncommon. And the reason for it was that in the ancient world, the the giving of gifts was part of a system of patronage, right? Where returns were expected, where favors were expected. The whole social lubricant depended on giving and receiving gifts. And when you live in that kind of gift-giving world, giving to the poor is useless because they can do nothing for you. There's no motivation to give to the poor. You're just giving your stuff away. So you will find Roman writers talking about how useless it is to give stuff to the poor. They've got nothing socially to give you back. And yet thousands of years before this, in the Torah, you have this idea that because God himself is the generous provider, because Yahweh himself is generous to the poor and committed to the poor, his people should give to the poor anyway. Yes, they, ha- they won't return the gift. But Yahweh will in due time. Your reciprocity will come not from the poor, but from God himself. This is completely, you know, we take this for granted in the West. But the idea that we should take care of the poor when the poor can return nothing to us is a distinctly Hebraic and Christian idea. 
And Hannah has it shot through the poem. Her God is the God of the underclass. Finally, the king is exalted. The last portion of the song points to the Lord coming in judgment. Again, you can see the profundity of this woman's theological instincts. Why does the poem go here? Well, why? because that's where the reversals will be fully enacted and fully manifested. When the Most High, as she says, thunders from heaven and the Lord comes to judge the ends of the earth. You know, I've said it before, but I, I think it's worth repeating. When we think of the Lord coming in glory to judge the living and the dead, which is part of the creed, which we confess every week, people tend to, to focus on the strand of that's a terrifying day and there's dread involved in it. And there's truth to that. But the dominant strand, and you can see this especially in the Psalms, if you read Psalm 96, 97, 98, the dominant strand is that the whole creation rejoices when the Lord comes. That, that, the, that the rivers clap their hands and the, and the trees sing for joy. Right, The ocean roars with gladness because the Lord is coming to judge the peoples with equity and with righteousness. Meaning he is coming to set the world right. He's coming to fix the broken and stained creation. And for that reason, we yearn for this coming. And Hannah already has that instinct in this poem. Her vision is eschatological. It requires that the unique God, the incomparable God, who was and who is, comes to judge the end of the earth. It's not some sort of social program, necessarily, that she's initiating. And notice here, we get a surprise, another incredible surprise at the end of verse 10. She says, he will give strength to his king and exalt the horn of his anointed. Do you know what you should ask right here if you're, you're reading this text carefully? What king? There's no kings in Israel. There are no kings. There's no monarchy. This is earlier than that. Here she's even more explicitly prophesying. She speaks of the Lord's anointed one. You know what she's talking about first and foremost? David and the coming monarchy. But ultimately this king is the Messiah. And thus peering through a glass darkly, Hannah sees something incredible. She sees a messianic king who will be exalted. And when he is lifted up, he will turn the world upside down. What happened to Hannah will happen to all the Lord's poor, barren, and empty people. The poor in spirit will receive the kingdom. The meek shall inherit the earth. Do you know that Jesus himself, in part, draws his teaching in the Sermon on the Mount from this text? Augustine said, here Hannah, by the spirit of prophecy, speaks directly the Christian faith itself. Surely you also notice this, that in the gospel lesson, Mary's Magnificat, Mary's, Mary's song, sung during her pregnancy, it's almost a replica of Hannah's. 
So I want you to think for a minute about Hannah's sphere of influence. She has influenced the whole vocabulary and theology of the Psalter. Jesus himself has drawn from her teaching. And Mary draws directly from it. Mary knows that her baby is the one who's going to affect this grand reordering. This reversal of fortunes. And like Hannah, Mary speaks of it as a done deal. Right? Here's, this is from the gospel lesson. He has brought down rulers from their thrones, but has lifted up the humble. He has filled the hungry with good things, but has sent the rich away empty. He has helped his servant Israel. So in closing, I want us to see that the pattern of this text, from weakness to strength, from poverty to wealth, from hunger to satisfaction, this is inscribed deeply in the DNA of our faith. And that's because it's inscribed deeply in the DNA of Jesus himself, who was rich and became poor, who was in the form of God and emptied himself, who descends and assumes our weakness, right? Our poverty, our social and political marginalization. He becomes a man of sorrows and outcast. The one who will judge the wicked is numbered with the wicked and judged. And he, the Lord's anointed, as Hannah prophesied in verse 10, in this text, over a thousand years earlier, he is raised and his horn is exalted in glory. So the path of Hannah, the path of Israel, the path of the church is fulfilled. It's figured forth for us in the path of Jesus. Descent and ascent. The way of the cross as the way to glory. This is deep in the bones of Christian people. It should be. And it's that pattern, right? That pattern guarantees that the Lord will set the world to rights. He's begun this now, and he will finish it when, as Hannah says, he thunders from heaven and judges the ends of the earth. It's in this light that we, see, we should see all the reversals. Right? All the tiny acts of deliverance in your life, they're little sacraments, they're little pointers to Christ and to the final reversal which has arrived in him. Two short exhortations then. Easy to remember. The first one is this. Pray. This is a prayer. So do what Hannah does. This is what we pray for when we pray, Thy kingdom come. I mean, do we want to see these reversals? Do we want the the world to be reordered? Think Think of the scope of this prayer. It's not prayer about this situation or that situation or that crisis or this problem or that illness or that whatever. The prayer is praying for the world to be restructured. We need more big praying like that. Pray for social reversal, for reversal in the church where it's needed. And pray for the vindication of God's poor and hungry and marginalized people. I think praying especially for the suffering and persecuted church should flow out of reading this text. Praying for the poor around the world should flow out of reading this text. Secondly, sing. 
We don't sing of Hannah's child, but we do sing of Mary's. Born not merely from a barren woman, but from a virgin. He is the full revelation of Hannah's God. The God of which we spoke earlier, Hannah's God, is revealed in Jesus Christ. The one in whom Hannah was exalted, the poor in Israel were exalted, and all the weak and despised people of God are already beginning, tasting that exaltation, destined to inherit thrones of honor when he comes in thunder to judge the ends of the earth in Hannah's language. Pray this prayer. Sing of the anointed, exalted king of which Hannah speaks. For the God of Hannah is the God and Father of the Lord Jesus Christ. Amen.